Section 3 of Uther and Igrine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uther and Igrine by Warwick Deeping. Book 1, Chapter 3. It was well towards evening when the men disappeared into the wood, leaving the girl bound naked to the tree. The day was calm and tranquil, with the mood of June on the wind and a benign sky above. Igrine's hair had fallen from its band and now hung in bronze masses well nigh to her knees, covering her as with a cloak. Her habit, shift, and sandals lay close beside her on the grass. The barbarians had robbed her of nothing, according to their old earl's wishes. She was simply bound there and left unscathed. When the men were gone, and she began to realize what had passed, she felt a flush spread from face to ankle, a glow of shame that was keen as fire. Her whole body seemed rosily flaked with blushes. The very trees had eyes, and the wind seemed to whisper mischief. There were none to see, none to wonder, and yet she felt like Eve in Eden, when knowledge had smitten the pure flesh with gradual shame. Though the place was solitary as a dry planet, her aspen fancy peopled it with life. She could still see the heavy-jowled barbaric faces staring at her like the malign masks of a dream. The West was already prophetic of night. There was the golden glow of the decline through the billowy foliage of the trees, and the shadows were very still, and reverent, for the day was passing. A beam of gold slanted down upon Igrine's breast and slowly died there amid her hair. The west flamed and faded, the east grew blind. Soon the day was not. Igrine watched the light faint above the trees, wondering in her heart what might befall her before another sun could set. She had tried her bonds, and had found them lacking sympathy in that they were as staunch as strength could make them. She was cramped, too, and began to long for the hated habit that had trailed in the galleries of Avangel and had brought such scorn into her discontented heart. There was no hope for it. She was pilloried there, bound body, wrist, and ankle. Philosophy alone remained to her, a poor enough cloak to the soul still worse for things tangible. Her plight gave her ample time for meditation. There were many chances open to her, and even in mere possibilities, fate had her at a vantage. In the first place, she might starve, or other unsavory folk find her, and her second state be worse than her first. Then there were wolves in the wold or country people might find and release her, or even Claudia and the women might return and see how she had fared. There was little comfort in this last thought. She shrewdly guessed that the abbey folk would not stop till they happened on a stone wall, or the heathen took them. Lastly, the road was at no very great distance, and she might hear perchance if any one passed that way. Presently the moon rose upon Andred's world with a stupendous splendor. The veil of night seemed dusted with silver as it swept from her tiara of stars. 
innumerable glimmering eyes starred the foliage of the beaches. Vague lights streamed down and netted the shadows with mysterious magic. Here and there, a tree trunk stood like a ghost, splashed with a phosphor tunic. The wilderness was soundless, the billowy bastions of the trees unruffled by a breath. The hush seemed vast, irrefutable, supreme. Not a leaf sighed, not a wind wandered in its sleep. The great trees stood in a silver stupor and dreamt of the moon. The solemn isles were still as Thebes at midnight. The smooth bowls of the beaches like ebony beneath canopies of jet. The scene held a grind in wonder. There was mystery about a moonlit forest that never lessened for her. The vasty void of the night, untainted by a sound, seemed like eternity unfolded above her ken. She forgot her plight for the time and took to dreaming, such dreams as the warm fancy of the young heart loves to remember. Perhaps beneath such a benediction, she thought of a pavilion set amid water lilies and a boy who had looked at her with boyish eyes. Yet these were childish things. They lost substance before the chafing of the cords that bound her to the tree. Presently, she began to sing softly to herself for the cheating of monotony. She was growing cold and hungry, too, despite all the magic of the place, and the hours seemed to drag like a homily. Then, with a gradual stealthiness, the creeping fear of death and the unknown began to steal in and cramp even her buoyant courage. It was vain for her to put the peril from her and to trust today and the succor that she vowed in her heart must come. Dread smote into her more cynically than did the night air. What might be her end? To hang there parched, starved, delirious, till life left her, to hang there still, a loathsome, livid thing, rotting like a cloak to be torn and fed upon by birds. She knew the region was as solitary as death and that the heathen had emptied it of the living. The picture grew upon her distraught imagination till she feared to look on it lest it should be the lurid truth. It was about midnight and she was beginning to quake with cold when a sound stumbled suddenly out of silence and set her listening. It dwindled and grew again, came nearer, became rhythmic and ringing in the keen air. Egrine soon had no doubts as to its nature. It was the steady smite of hoofs on the high road, the rhythm of a horse walking. Now was her chance if she dared risk the character of the rider. Doubts flashed before her a moment, hovered, and then merged into decision. Better to risk the unknown, she thought, than tempt starvation tied to the tree. She made her choice and acted. Help there! Help! The words went like silver through the woods. Egrine, listening hungrily, strained forward at her bonds to catch the answer that might come to her. The sound of hoofs ceased and gave place to silence. 
possibly the rider was in doubt as to the testimony of his own hearing. Egrain called again, and again waited. Stillness held. Then there was a stir, and a crackling as of trampled brushwood, followed by the snort of a horse and the thrill of steel. The sounds came nearer, with the deadened tramp of hoofs for an underchant. Egrain, full of hope and fear, of doubt and gratitude, kept calling for his guidance. Presently, a cry came back to her in turn. By the Holy Cross, who are you that calls? A woman, she cried in turn, bound here by the heathen. Where? Here, in the grass ride, tied to a tree. The words had come to her were very welcome, heralding, as they did, a friend, at least in race, and there was a manly depth in the voice, too, that gave her comfort. She saw a glimmer of steel in the shadows of the wood as man and horse drew into being from the darkness. Moonlight played fitfully upon them, weaving silver gleams amid a smoke of gloom, making a white mist about the man's great horse. A single ray burnt and blazed like a halo about the rider's casque, and his spear point flickered like a star beneath the vaultings of the trees. He had halted, a solitary figure wrapped round with night and rendered grand and wizard by the misty web of the moon. The sight was pathetic enough, yet infinitely fair. Light streamed through and fell full upon the tree where Igrain stood. The girl's limbs were white and luminous against the dark bosom of the beach, and her rich hair fell about her like mist. As for the strange rider, he could at least claim the inspiration accorded to a Christian. The servant of the Galilean has, like Constantine, a symbol in the sky, prophetic in all need, generous of all guidance. The cross is a perpetual Delphi oracular on trivial matters as on the destinies of kingdoms. The man dismounted, knelt for a moment with sword held before him, and then rose and strode to the tree with shield held before his face. Egrain was looking at the figure in armor, kindly, redly, from amid the masses of her hair. The small noblenesses of his bearing towards her had won her trust with a flush of gratitude. The man saw only the white feet like marble amid the moss as he cut the thongs where they circled the tree. The bands fell. He saw the white feet flicker, a trail of hair waving under his shield. Then he turned on his heel without a word and went to tether his horse. The interlude was as considerate as courtesy had intended. Egrain darted for her habit with a rapturous sigh. When the man turned leisurely again, a tall girl met him, cloaked in gray, with her hair still hanging about her and sandals on her feet. Mother Virgin, a nun. The words seemed sudden as an echo. Egrain bent her head to hide the half-abashed, half-smiling look upon her face. It had been thus at Avangel. Nun and novice had worn like habits, 
and there had been nothing to distinguish them save the final, solemn vow. The man's notions were plainly celibate, and, with a sudden, twinkling inspiration, she fancied that they should bide so. It would make matters smoother for them both, she thought. My prayers are yours, daily, for this service, she said. The man bent his head to her. I am thankful, madam, he answered, that I should have been so good-fortuned as to be able to befriend you. How came you by such evil hazard? I was of Avangel, she said. You speak as of the past, quoth he, with a keen look. Avangel was burnt and sacked but yesterday, she said. Many of the nuns were martyred. Some few escaped. I was made captive here and bound to this tree by the heathen. Igrain could see the man's face darken even in the moonlight, as though pain and wrath held mute confederacy there. He crossed himself, and then stood with both hands on the pommel of his sword, stately and statuesque. And the Lady Gratia, he said. Dead, I fear. A half-heard groan seemed to come from the man's helmet. He bent his head into the shadows and stood stiff and silent, as though smitten into thought. Presently, he seemed to remember himself, Egrine, and the occasion. And yourself, madam, he said with a twinge of tenderness in his voice. The girl blushed and nearly stammered. I am unscathed, she hastened to say. Thanks to heaven. I am safe and whole as if I had spent the day in a convent cell. My name is Grine, if you would know it. I fear I have told you heavy tidings. The man turned his face to the sky like one who looks into other worlds. It is nothing, he said, gazing into the night. Nothing but what we must look for in these stark days. Our altars smoke, our blood is spilt, and yet we still pray. Yet may I be cursed, and cursed again, if I do not die my sword for this. There was a sudden bleak fierceness in his voice that betrayed his fiber and the strong thoughts that were stirring in his heart that moment. His face looked almost fanatical in the cold gloom, gaunt, heavy-jawed, lion-like. Egrine watched this thundercloud of thought and passion in silence, thinking she would meet the man in the rack of life rather as friend than as foe. The brief mood seemed to pass, or at least to lose expression. Again, there was that in the kindness of his face that made the girl feel beneath the eye of a brother. You will ride with me? he asked. Igrine hesitated a moment. I was for Andorida, she said, and it is only three leagues distant. Now that I am free, I can go through the world alone, for I am no child. An insult to my manhood, said the stranger. But the heathen are everywhere. I should but cumber you. Madam, you talk like a fool. There was a sheer sincerity about the speech that pleased Egrine. His spirit seemed to overtop hers and to silence argument. Proud heart, 
yet without thought of debate, she gave way in the most placid manner and was content to be shepherded. I might walk at your stirrup, she said meekly. The man seemed to ponder. He merely looked at her with dark, solemn eyes, showing a quiet disregard for her humility. Listen to me, he said. You, a woman, must not attempt Andorita alone. The town will be beleaguered, or I am no prophet. To Andorita I cannot go, for I have folk at Winchester who wait my coming. If you can put your trust in me and will ride with me to Winchester, you will find harbor there. She considered a moment. Winchester, she said. Yes, and most certainly I trust you. The man stretched out a hand to her with a smile. God willing, he said, I will bear you safe to the place. As for your frocks and vows, they must follow necessity and pocket their pride. It will not damn you to ride before a man. I trow not, she said, with a little laugh that seemed to make the leaves quiver. So they took horse together and rode out from the beech wood into the moonlight. End of chapter three of Uther and Grine, narrated by Laurie Nadeau Richardson, www.laurierichardsonvo.com.